Good morning. Let's stand together, hear from God's word as we begin our time. Psalm 148 says, Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. Well, there is only one name that we celebrate this time of year, one name that we exalt every Sunday. That's the name of Jesus. So on this, the last Sunday of 2020, let us do as we always do and exalt the name of Jesus, our Savior, in our hearts, in our minds, and as we clap together and rejoice together.
Amen. You just sang that all who see him shine through us might bring the Father praise. And that's what we desire. As God makes us more like him, as we grow in our love for him and our neighbor, that others would see that and that would open hearts to the gospel, that people would put their faith in Jesus, and then they would join us in this song. And that's why we say at DSC, our mission is to spread God's glory broader and deeper. You may be seated. Well, I'm here to uh, give an update and to celebrate with you of how you have been shining before the Navajo and our local elementary. Uh, Immediately after Thanksgiving, we began receiving gifts for the Navajo. We've been receiving uh, flour, coffee, coats, warm gloves, and hats, Legos, and other toys. And you guys have responded so well to our call. We asked for more gifts than uh, we've ever asked for. And you ended up giving us somewhere around a thousand gifts. Yeah, amen. You guys have been so generous and the Navajo have been so thankful. And we brought those gifts to our two partner churches on the res. One, Cedar Hill, which is just north of Cuba. uh, And the other one, Good News Church, which is in Hauk, Arizona. And uh, both did drive-through services because they couldn't have in-person services because of their restrictions. Uh, Good News Church was very innovative. Pastor Eugene set up a temporary radio uh, station. He also built a little structure for people to be able to drive through and be able to receive their gifts. He preached two different sermons, almost like uh, an old drive-in movie theater. People would drive in, turn on their radio, and be able to listen to him and sing uh, Christmas songs uh, with their church. Uh, They are so thankful for our partnership. They created gift boxes for families and for children, uh, and it was really well received. Also, we, uh, for the first time ever, uh, asked for you guys to give us board games for Los Ranchos Elementary. We asked for 50 board games so we could uh, give to 50 different families, and you guys ended up giving more than we even asked for. And uh, we also had people bring in food for uh, these needy families, so we gave board games and food, and it, it was well-received. One family said uh, that the food we gave is go- helped them make it through uh, this Christmas break where the kids aren't receiving free lunches. So thank you, guys. You guys are literally uh, feeding the hungry and giving coats to those who are cold. Uh, so thank you for helping us fulfill our mission of shining before our neighbors, of spreading God's glory broader and deeper. Now, please join me as I pray for our worship service. Our gracious God in heaven, thank you for allowing us to gather as a body today and to worship you. God, your church has gathered here desiring to be changed. We desire to be more like you, but this task is impossible for us to do on our own. We pray that you would do a miracle And help us to see your grace in our darkness. And to help us to hate sin as you do. God, we pray for those that are here for other reasons. We pray that that they would leave today knowing your grace and love. Open ears and eyes to your gospel. Bring life in dead hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand and rejoice.
blessed angel came and unto certain shepherds the tidings of the same now that in Bethlehem was born the son of God by name Oh, wait. 
Please join me as I pray for our Navajo Church partners and Los Ranchos Elementary. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for you are exceedingly gracious as you seek out sinners like us to save us from our sins and to invite us into your heavenly kingdom. We praise you for your desire to save people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And particularly, we praise you for your saving work among the Navajo. We thank you for our Navajo church partners. We thank you for the Good News, for Good News Church and for Cedar Hill Church. We praise you that you have allowed our church to be an encouragement to these churches and their pastors. We thank you, Father, for our partnership with Chuck and Cindy Harper, who have served faithfully on the reservation at, across nations for many years. We thank you for their faithful gospel witness. We praise you for all the good work you are doing on the Cross Nations campus, like building the new radio tower that will allow them to continue to provide gospel sermons and music to the Navajo Nation. God, we pray that you would continue to bless the ministry of the Harpers as they seek to be an encouragement to Navajo pastors and to spread the gospel in the Navajo Nation. We thank you for saving Pastor Tooley of Cedar Hill and Pastor Eugene of Good News Church. We pray that you would bless their ministries and that they would not grow weary in doing good. Lord, we thank you for the good reports we've received from both churches and how the Christmas stores were well received. We thank you that the gospel was presented to all who came. Lord, we pray that those gospel seeds would sprout and bear fruit of repentance and faith. God, grow your church. God, we also thank you for our partnership with Los Ranchos Elementary. We thank you for, for providing us so many ways to connect with the school. 
Lord, we want to shine to our neighbors. We want to share the good news and to serve our neighbors, but often we don't know how. We thank you that this partnership has given our members those opportunities. We thank you for letting us be the means by which you provide food to needy families for this difficult Christmas break. We pray that those families who receive baskets would call the number that's in the basket and that we would be able to connect them with DSE families and that those connections would bring further opportunities for us to shine your light before our neighbors. God, we pray that you would bless Los Ranchos Elementary. We pray that you would aid them in their mission of educating their students. Bless the families at the school. Strengthen the marriages. Bless their parenting with wisdom. Give the children good health and strong minds. We pray that the faculty of Los Ranchos would be encouraged as they go into the next semester. Give Principal Craig wisdom as he leads the school. Help him to build up the teachers and to be a leader and a guardian to the students. God, we also thank you for Tyke Landis and Talia Sierra for their work in leading this ministry to continue to give them good favor with the school and wisdom to know how to best shine Christ to them. God, we thank you for all the good reports. We thank you for these partnerships. Bless our partnerships on the res and at Los Ranchos, and may others see you as we shine and ultimately give you all the glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand to respond to that and give all glory to Christ. Should nothing of our efforts stand, no legacy survive, unless the Lord does raise the house in vain, its builders strive. Do you who boast tomorrow's gain tell me what is your life? A mist that vanishes at dawn, although we to Christ. All
say amen. amen. You can be seated. Yes, all glory be to Christ. If you've got a Bible, why don't you turn to the gospel according to John chapter 12. It's going to be our sermon text this morning. John chapter 12. We'll be studying verses 20 through 33 in John chapter 12. The words will also be up on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. So let me read these, John chapter 12, verses 20 to 33. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. This is God's word. Let's say a prayer. Lord, I pray that you would work by your word and your Holy Spirit to help us to know you better to glorify you, and to live in such a way that leads to our own glory, producing even more glory for you. Lord, please use this time to that end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I hope you've all had a Merry Christmas. Now we have set our eyes on the new year, haven't we? Is anybody uh, the kind of person that stays up until midnight on New Year's Eve? Nobody? Or you guys just are all asleep still? You're just recovering from Christmas, is that right? I am not the kind that likes to stay up until midnight on New Year's Eve. You know, it's, that's just too late, right? I know it's going to happen. I don't need to watch it. I'll wake up the next morning and see it on my phone. It's the new year. But this year, this year I kind of want to stay up till midnight just to make sure that 2020 leaves, <laughs> right? It's, <laughs> Somebody clapped that. Please clap at the gospel part later, too. Let's see. But no, this has been a hard year, right? This has been a, not all bad, but it's been hard. And I think all of us are a little eager to see 
2021 arrive. We kind of hope that, I don't know, maybe something just magical will happen as soon as it's 2021. Like COVID is going to go away and our country will be back to normal and the Cowboys will have a good quarterback again (laughs) and everything's going to be better. And you know that's probably not going to happen, right? Like not like that midnight on New Year's Eve. But it's okay for us to hope that next year is better than this year. This has been a hard year. As long as we remember that our ultimate hope is not set on 2021 being better than 2020, okay? Our hope, our true hope is set on a totally different hour than midnight on New Year's Eve. It's set on an hour that happened a long time ago, and that's the hour that these verses are about. The Gospel of John's interesting because just like we count down to New Year's Eve, The Gospel of John is structured around something of a countdown to a specific hour. So if you would read the book up to this point, you would see these repeated references to an hour that has not yet come. Well, in chapter 12, Jesus says, it's here. Now is the hour that everything has been leading up towards. For our purposes this morning, we're going to look at this text in... uh, in a kind of out-of-order way. Usually we try to just go verse by verse through it in, in order. But this, te- this text is kind of structured like a sandwich. So it's got a, a section at the beginning that is talking about this hour, what it is, and what it means for the whole world. And then it ends with a section that's meditating on the same thing, this hour and what it means for the whole world. And then in the middle of those two sections, there is where Jesus turns to talk to his followers and what this hour means for us and how we follow Jesus in our own kind of hour. So for this morning, we're going to look at this text at those two sections on the end first, and then at the end, we will study that section in the middle. Does that make sense? So it's like a sandwich, but when I say it's like a sandwich, I don't want you to think that that middle section is meatier than the beginning or the ending sections, right? Like this whole sandwich is made out of meat, okay? It's like, uh, you know, a prime rib steak and a prime rib steak with bacon in between, okay? That is our text this morning. It's meaty and it's delicious, okay? That's how we're going to look at it. So verses 20 to 24 are the hour of the son's death, the hour of the son's death. So chapter 12 begins with excitement about Jesus kind of reaching a fever pitch. So up to this point in the gospel, Jesus has been doing lots of signs. He's been saying a lot of things. And, and at the beginning of chapter 12, he comes into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. And he is received by everyone there like he is the king. Okay, so they, they cut off palm branches. They wave them around. They say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So that is how he is received when he comes in. And then in verse 20, the text says that among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Okay, so this is uh, hitting on what is the biggest distinction at the time in ancient Israel, the distinction between Jews and everybody else. Okay, the the Gentiles or what are called the Greeks were non-Jews. Okay, so these Greeks were at the Passover festival worshiping Israel's God, but they were not Jews. Maybe they were God-fearers or maybe they were even proselytes who had gone through the whole process of converting to Judaism, but they're still Greeks. Okay, and they come to Philip, one of Jesus' disciples, and they say, hey, I want to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. So Philip goes and brings him 
to Jesus. This is a decisive moment in John's gospel. Okay, John has not focused as much up to this point on what the gospel means for all of the nations. But here, here is that first major glimpse of what actually the whole Old Testament, the whole Bible has been driving to up to this point that the gospel is a gospel for all nations, that it's actually the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham all the way back in the book of Genesis that he would bless all of the nations of the earth through the offspring of Abraham. And then that specifically through the nation of Israel and Israel's king in the line of David. That's where this has been driving to. And all of a sudden, here are some Greeks that want to see Jesus. And Jesus says something really interesting when they come, when Andrew and Philip come and tell him that these Greeks want to see them. It's like this triggers for Jesus something important. Like he knows when this happens, ah, this is, this is when the countdown has reached zero. Verse 24, he says, or verse 23 rather, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, pretend you don't know the rest of the story of what happens to Jesus. What would you think when Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified? I think we know what Andrew and Philip would have thought, because when they heard Jesus say, the Son of Man, they would have heard that with some significance. They would have heard that as a reference to Daniel chapter 7, where the prophet Daniel has a vision, he says, of one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven to stand before God, the ancient of days, on behalf of the nation of Israel. And in Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, Daniel says this, To the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That, listen to this, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So think about everything that's happened up to this point in John chapter 12. Jesus has been very publicly honored as the king of Israel. And now here come these Greeks who are representatives of the nations. They've come. They want to have an audience with King Jesus. And then Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, Now is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. What do you think Andrew and Philip are thinking? Yeah! This is it! The kingdom has come! Jesus is about to step up onto his throne as the king of Israel, and he is about to put down our enemies, and we are at last going to be on top with our dominion that we have always wanted, and it is going to be an everlasting dominion. This is going to be great. And that makes sense, right? This is what we looked at on Christmas Eve. Jesus had a different conversation with his disciples, and they were arguing about who's the greatest. This is what we want in our hearts. We want to be on top. We want to be the best. We want to be the greatest. We want to have control. We want to have power. We want to have comfort. We want to have pleasure. We want to go up. What does Jesus say right after he says it's the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified? Look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies... It remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 
This is so surprising. In just a few days from this triumphal entry where he's received as a king, he's going to be hung up on a cross. The hour that Jesus has been counting down to, the hour of his glory is not him being set up on a throne. It's him being set up on a cross. He uses this metaphor. He says, imagine a grain of wheat. Okay, think about it. Think about a grain of wheat, all right? I think about it as like this big, tall stalk of wheat that goes up. It's shining in the sun. It's kind of blowing in the breeze. And there's this grain of wheat that is just beautiful. But if that grain of wheat was selfish and it wanted to hold on to that place that it had up there, it didn't want to come down. It wanted to stay up there where it was. It wanted to even try and get higher. Well, well, it could. It could hold on to that place that it has, but it would remain alone. And it would not fulfill its purpose. Jesus says, but if it dies, it's willing to come down, to lose everything that it had up there, to fall into the grounds, to be buried, to be trampled on, dishonored. It dies, yes, and that hurts something incredible happens. What was a death leads to a a new kind of life, an even better kind of life, where it bursts up from the ground as as another stalk with all kinds of grains of wheat on the top, and then those fall down, and then they do the same thing. They grow up until all of a sudden you have this harvest of fruit. What's Jesus talking about? He's talking about himself. He's talking about the gospel. This is Philippians 2 stuff, isn't it? We just looked at this. Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus Christ existed in the form of God. He is God, the Son. But he didn't consider that place, that equality with God as something to be clung to, something to be grasped tightly. But instead he, he gave it up. He emptied himself by taking the form of a man like us. And he was obedient to his father as a man to the point of death. The grain of wheat fell down and it died. And because of that, Paul says, Philippians chapter 2 verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Does that sound like Daniel 7 to you? The Son of Man receiving dominion, receiving glory, having all of the nations come and worship him? Yeah. But how did Jesus get that exalted place? How did Jesus get that glory? It was by the giving up of glory. He was willing to come down so that he could be lifted up in glory. So the hour of the son's glory that is now here is the hour of the son's death. Now skip down to verse 27 because Jesus is going to keep on unpacking this idea of what this hour is, what it accomplishes, how it is that his coming down actually bears much fruit. So verses 27 to 33, we see the purpose of the son's death. In verse 27, Jesus begins, Now is my soul troubled. 
unlike what we call the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John's gospel doesn't record Jesus having a, a moment of agony in the Garden of Gethsemane where he's praying about his death that's about to happen. But right here, John has Jesus saying, my soul is troubled. That word elsewhere is translated terrified. Okay, so Jesus says, I am terrified. Death on the cross was one of the most painful, torturous ways, most humiliating ways that somebody could die. And Jesus not only knew the hour of his death, but he also knew how he was going to die. Did you see that in verse 33? He knows what's coming, and the thought of it troubled him. And so he prays, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. There's our I have come statement that we've been looking at in this series over the last few weeks. Jesus says, I have come to die. I don't want you to save me from that, God. Instead, verse 28, he prays, Father, glorify your name. I think that's very similar to when Christ prays in the synoptic gospels, not my will, but your will be done. God, I don't want to worry about my wants in this. I don't want to worry about my pain in this. I don't want to worry about my comfort or my status in this. God, I want to worry about you. I want to worry about your glory. I want your will to be done. Glorify your name. And then something incredible happens. A voice from heaven. This is only the third time in the Gospels where God speaks audibly. Can you think of what the other two are? There's the baptism and there's the transfiguration. And this is similar to that. The voice says, I have glorified it. Okay, he's saying, everything that Jesus has done in his life up to this point has glorified my name, and I will glorify it again when Jesus dies and is buried and is raised. So this voice says, just like the baptism, just like the transfiguration, that the Father approves of the Son. This is my beloved Son. I am glorified through him. But this voice tells us something else really important. It shows us that the Father and the Son are of one will. They have one purpose. Jesus coming is the Father sending Jesus didn't come apart from his father's will, in spite of his father's will. And that matters a lot. That matters to me because sometimes I'm tempted to think that the father's the mean one and Jesus is the nice one. And that's not it at all. It can be farther from that. The father was the one that sent his son, gave his only begotten son because he loved the world. Jesus says, Father, don't, don't save me from this. It was for this purpose that you sent me. It was for this purpose that I came, that I could die. And you have to just ask why. Why was that God's will? That God the Son would come to earth and take on a human form and die. Why would God the Father give his only begotten Son? Why would Jesus come so low? Well, what did he say in verse 24? Unless the grain of wheat falls to the ground, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 
He wants the fruit. What's the fruit? You are. You, you are. Isn't that incredible? That's why Jesus came. He wanted to die for you. So we ask, well, how does, how does that work? How does his dying bear fruit in me? Jesus explains in verses 31 and 32. In 31, he says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the ruler of this world cast out. The judgment that Jesus is referring to is the judgment that we all deserve for our sins. Every one of us has disobeyed God. We've broken his commandments. And the Bible says that the wages of sin, what we earn for our sin, is death. It's the judgment of God. It's the wrath of God. Even eternal wrath in hell. And Jesus 2 and 31, he mentions the ruler of this world. That's talking about Satan. Hebrews 2 says that the devil has the power of death. And he keeps us in spiritual bondage because of our sin and our fear of death. So we've got a big problem. We all sit under judgment because of our sin. We will all die. And we're all kept in the fear of death by Satan. And there's nothing we can do about it in our, our own strength. There's no way that we can come out from underneath our judgment. There's no way that we can make things right any more than a criminal convicted of a crime standing in front of a judge when the judge declares them guilty. They can't talk their way out of it. They can't make it better somehow. They can't pay it back some way. They just deserve the judgment. Jesus says now is the judgment. What he means is that the whole purpose for which he came was to suffer our judgment in our place. It'd be like if you were the, the criminal in that courtroom scene. The judge declared you guilty from up on his seat and then came down and walked around and took the punishment himself and let you go free. That was why Jesus came. That's why Christmas matters so much. That's why we make such a big deal out of the incarnation because this is a problem that God could not solve from a distance. He had to come to us. Jesus came down to us and he took on a human nature that was just like ours in every way except without sin so that he could die the death that you deserve to die so that it would, you would be spared that death. He says now is the judgment of the world. In John chapter 3, verse 18, John writes, the one who believes in Jesus is not judged. Do you hear that? Do you feel the weight of your judgment? Do you feel the weight of your sin? He says, if you believe in Jesus, you're not judged. That is such good news. How is that possible? Because Jesus was judged in your place. He came and took the punishment. And then John goes on to say, the one who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That's what Jesus means when he says the whole world is judged at the cross. The whole world divides everybody into two categories. Those who are believers who have taken their judgment away on the cross and those who have refused to believe even when the judge has come down and said, I'll take it from you. They say, no, no, no. I don't believe that. 
and they'll suffer, suffer every moment of that wrath that they deserve for all eternity. But perhaps the most amazing thing about all of this in this passage, the, the big point of this is that the salvation that Jesus offers, this, this removal of judgment that he will take on himself on the cross, that's not just for the Jews. It's not just for Israel who he has come to. It's for everybody. He says in verse 32, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And I love the play on words here in that lifted up from the earth. It can mean lifted up physically. You know, he's elevated above the ground, which he would be on the cross. He was hung up in the air so that everybody could see him naked, dying in our place. But lifted up also means exalted, glorified. So Jesus is saying, even in that moment of my glory being given up, that's when I'm the most glorious. Because that's when the punishment is being paid. That's when the freedom from the ruler of this world is happening. That's when the judgment is removed right there at the cross. And he says, at that point, I'll draw all people to myself. Anybody and everybody can come and have fellowship with me. Anybody, no matter who you are, no matter where you've come from, no matter what you've done, you can come and have your sins forgiven on the cross. And this is where it goes right back around to the beginning where the Greeks wanted to see Jesus. He is their king. And they will see him. Amen. Anyone that will look on Jesus as he's lifted up can be forgiven. Athanasius, the bishop of Alexandria in the third century, he wrote this. It's only on the cross that a man dies with his arms outstretched. It was fitting that Jesus die with those outstretched arms that he might draw his ancient people with the one and the Gentiles with the other and join them both together in himself. That's the gospel. That's the gospel of the Son of Man being lifted up, of coming down so that we can be raised with him. So that's the beginning and the end of our text. The hour of the son's death that is effective for the whole world. Anyone that would believe in him can have their sins forgiven. And as I said, right there in the middle, there's this shift in what Jesus is talking about or who Jesus is talking to. Just a little bit, he shifts to his disciples, his followers, and what this means for them. In verse 25, he says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So Jesus is saying is that metaphor of the, the grain of wheat falling to the ground, it's not just about Jesus. It has its its basis in Jesus, it has its fulfillment in Jesus. It's only because Jesus came down and died for us that we can have life. But Jesus is saying that same principle of dying and bearing fruit, that applies to everyone that follows him. 
Last Sunday, if you were with us, we looked at the calling of Levi, who was this sinful tax collector, and Jesus said to him, follow me. And Levi left his whole life behind and, and followed Jesus. And we said that when we looked at that, that that's, that's what a rabbi would do when he called disciples. He would say, follow me. And they would literally follow him. They would walk around with him wherever he went. And they would, they would learn his teaching. And they would learn how to say his teaching. And they would imitate him in his life. And all of the things that he did, they would do too. And that was how they learned the teaching of their master. And Jesus is calling us to that same kind of discipleship only it's not following him around physically it's following him and dying just like he did where i am there will my servant be also and when we follow jesus into dying like he died then we also get to follow jesus into rising like he was raised And being glorified like he was glorified, sharing in his glory. Did you see that verse 26 ends with the Father honoring us? But we don't don't come about that glory in a different way than the Son of Man did. We come about that glory by giving up our glory and dying with Jesus. That's the principle, okay? He says, if you love your life... If the grain of wheat refuses to fall down to the earth and die, you will lose your life. But if you hate your life in this world, and it's not an absolute kind of hate, what he's talking about is if you don't consider the things in your life as worth losing to gain something more. If you don't consider your life or your relationships or your possessions or your comforts as being clung on to, not given up, If you are willing to lose your life, then you will be raised to something even better. And nothing can take it away from you. It's an everlasting dominion. Eternal life. But it's going to hurt. It will be excruciating. I think I've said this before, that the word excruciating comes from our word for cross. Jesus isn't exaggerating when he says that we have to die with him. It's that bad. And I was reminded as I was thinking about this of just how contrary this is to our culture. We live in a culture that is so therapeutic. You know what I mean by that? Everything about our culture says that what's most important is making yourself feel better alleviating pain. Maybe physical pain, but especially emotional pain, okay? That everything about our life is catering to you so that you feel better, so that you feel good, so that you feel hopeful, that you feel like you have purpose in life, that you feel comfortable in your own skin. This is what people write books about. This is what talk shows are all about. This is what our whole culture is driving all the time is that the most important thing is that whatever problem you have gets fixed so that you feel better and self-actualized. And I'm afraid that even the church has adopted this. So you listen to churches, even churches that would consider themselves to be conservative churches, that believe that the Bible is the word of God. You listen to their messages and their messages are all about how good God wants your life to be. And what your purpose is and how you find your purpose. And, and it's all going to be great. They don't talk about dying. 
Jesus talks about dying. Jesus talks about hurting so that you can have something better, so that you can bear fruit. If all you're hearing is a message about how great you are and how great your life can be if you just follow these six steps and how much God wants things to be good in your life, I'm afraid what that's doing is underlying the very problem that if the grain of wheat has everything that it wants and doesn't give any of it up, it remains alone and it's not bearing any fruit. That's not what Jesus is calling us to. He's calling us to suffer. And that's not popular. Okay, we're, we, we as a church are not going to get a huge following by preaching suffering. But I believe we're preaching you the whole counsel of God. Because Jesus says that we all need to follow him like a grain of wheat dying so that we can bear fruit. So what does that mean? How do we follow Jesus in dying? The very first thing is you follow Jesus in dying by believing in him. To believe in Jesus is a kind of death. Even spiritually, the Bible says that when you believe in Jesus, a union happens with Christ. And so you actually died on the cross with Jesus. And you were raised from the dead with Jesus. So to believe in Jesus, a death instantly happens. This is what Paul means in Galatians 2.20 when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. And the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. But apart from, from that, that dying that happens when we believe in Jesus, what I mean is that, that if you want to believe in Jesus, it's going to cost you everything. It will. When I'm sharing the gospel with a non-believer, and I've, and I've laid it out there a bunch of times. I know that they understand it. It's all out on the table, and yet they just refuse to believe it. I'll often just ask them, what are you afraid of losing? What are you afraid of losing if you believe in Jesus? What would you turning to faith in Jesus Christ mean that you give up, that you really don't want to? Do you not want to believe in Jesus because you know it would mean that you would have to stop being in a relationship that you know is sinful? Do you not want to believe in Jesus because that's really going to get in the way of your career ambitions? Do you not want to believe in Jesus because that's going to fundamentally change how you spend your weekends? That's what it was for me. That sounds so silly that that, that was what was keeping me from believing in Jesus, but, but I was holding on to my friend group and my weekend plans and all the activities that we got into that we shouldn't have been. And I was afraid to give that up. And by God's grace, he, he wouldn't leave me there. He, he kept on drawing me to himself. But if I had held on to that and lost everything, but it hurts. It hurts to let go of those things. Jesus asked Levi to leave his his wealth, his occupation, everything that he had, his status. But you gain so much. You gain everything. You gain eternal life. So I'll just say, if you haven't believed in Jesus, take his word seriously. There is a judgment. And he'll pay it. You have to let go of those things you're holding on to. You have to say, Father, glorify your name. It's not about me anymore. It's not about what I want. And then when you've believed in Jesus, when you've, you've 
undergone that, that first death, you've been raised to walk in newness of life. Well, Christian, your whole life is just more dying every day. These verses in John are parallel to verses in the other Gospels where Jesus says, take up your cross daily. You heard that phrase, take up your cross? Luke chapter 9, 23, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. That's not a pretty metaphor. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Jesus says, you die every day. The whole of the Christian life lived in faith in the Son of God is a, is a life of continually denying yourself and dying in all of these little ways. To repent of sin is dying to yourself. To say, I really like this thing that I'm doing, but I'm going to turn away from that and it's going to hurt. I'm going to give it up, but I want to say, Father, your will be done. That hurts. It's going to feel like dying, but that's how we follow Jesus. To exercise self-control, to resist temptation. That's not easy. That's hard. That hurts. That's dying to yourself. To confess your sins to someone. Or to not try to justify yourself in an argument. To not boast about your accomplishments. To apologize to someone that you've hurt. To ask someone for forgiveness. This is all coming down. This hurts. It's excruciating. But it's following Jesus. I think most of all to serve someone else. To see someone else have a need that you're able to meet, but the only way that their need can be met is if you stand to lose something. Well, that's the gospel, isn't it? What did Jesus do for us? There was nobody in greater need than we were. And there was no one that stood to lose more than the Son of God did when he came down and died on the cross for us. But that's what he did. And so Jesus says, do that too. Serve me. By following me and serving others and dying so that they can have life. That bears fruit. And that's what all of this has been driving towards. That's what the point of this, this whole thing is, is that we would bear fruit, that God would bear fruit in us. If we're like that selfish grain of wheat, we refuse to die, we refuse to come down. We don't gain anything. We may, we may feel like we're gaining a little bit. We may feel like we're on top. We may feel like we're up high. But if we come down, if we will serve Jesus by obeying his Father, if we will serve others, even if it means suffering ourselves. And just like Christ's own death was, was a death, but also the beginning of a new life, so also you, Christian, will experience a little resurrection. Every time you lay down your life, you will experience fruit. You will experience growth. 
Okay, and I can't even go into all of the reasons that, that that's true. It's just a principle that you find the more and more you live this life of taking up your cross, the more and more you see the fruit of God at work in your life, both in you and in others. So when you lay down your life to, to seek reconciliation in a relationship, then you have the joy of a, a new relationship. You have the joy of a strengthened relationship that wasn't there before. And if you had just held on to your rights in that relationship— If you had refused to be reconciled, well, you would have kept your place, but you would have remained alone. But if you will humble yourself, if you will die and you will seek reconciliation, even at cost to yourself, then you get so much. Do you see that? That's that's fruit in this life, not to mention the fruit of eternal life when we're glorified with the Father. If we will die when it comes to how we think about our possessions, if we won't hold on to those so tightly that they matter so much to us, if we, can, if we can free ourselves of that kind of materialism and then we find, wow, we can actually live. We can love in a way that we couldn't before. When we live this life of dying every day, we come to experience the gospel in an amazing new way. Not just in a way of its words in our head, but in a way that it's, it's felt. We, we identify with Christ. We know a little bit more. Oh, that's just a small taste of what Jesus did for me. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And the more we understand the gospel in that experiential way by following Jesus in his death and in his resurrection, we become holier. We become more sanctified. And the more sanctified we are, the more the, the Father is glorified even to the ends of the earth. And that's, that's, I think, what Jesus is getting at most in all of this, is that he wants his disciples to be people that follow him and laying down their lives so that other people can be saved, so that other people can have eternal life. I think Jesus wants us to be a people that goes out into the world and into our neighborhoods, living lives of self-sacrifice, meeting the needs of other people, especially their greatest need, the need to know the gospel. So you've got to think about this picture again. Every one of us is a little grain of wheat. If we've believed in Jesus, each one of us is a little grain of wheat that came from a grain of wheat, that came from a grain of wheat, that came from that grain of wheat that glorious grain of wheat that didn't hold on to his place but came down so that we could have life. Jesus wants us to just keep it going, keep on laying down our lives, dying, so that we can bear fruit in others, that they can hear the gospel and they can see in our lives, not just with our words, but in our lives, what we mean when we say we have a Savior who died with outstretched arms. That's what Jesus wants for us, That was his purpose, and he has made that our purpose. So I grew up in, in Texas, and in the South, there's this New Year's Day tradition of eating black-eyed peas. Do you guys do that? Is that a New Mexico thing? No? Good, because I don't like black-eyed peas. <laughs> and every New Year's Day, it was, you know, this black-eyed peas. Uh, <laughs> and the reason that that they do that is it actually goes back a long time to when black-eyed peas were like animal food. So that was really, and see, they're not good. That's what you feed to horses. 
and you eat black-eyed peas when there's nothing left. So to put it bluntly, black-eyed peas are poor people food. And the tradition is that you eat poor people food on the first day of the year so that by luck, the end of the year, you'll be eating, you know, prime rib bacon sandwiches. <laughs> and that's how so many of us approach a new year, isn't it? That we want the end of that year, my circumstances, my status, my wealth to be better than it was at the start of that year. That's what we want. But what if we went into 2021 with this vision, this purpose that Jesus has given to us? Not that we would hope by the end of the year that we are up so high, but by the end of the year we have gone low. We have died for others so that others can be brought up. What if that was our vision for 2021? Let's pray for that, okay? Lord, we thank you for Jesus. What a Savior. Who gave up his equality with God, his place with God, adding to himself a human nature so that he would die for us, the death that we deserve to die. Lord, please help us to understand that gospel, to experience that gospel. I pray if there's anyone in here that hasn't believed that yet, that they're still holding on to other things, Lord, would you please help them to let go and to see in you everything, their only hope in life and in death. And Lord, for your church, I pray that you would help us to, to be like Jesus, that we would be willing to die, to come down, to meet the needs of others so that they can be brought up and that you would help us to experience the fruit of dying more and more every day as we follow you until that day when you bring us home with you, when we are lifted up with you and glorified with you by your Father. Amen. Let us stand and respond.
say hallelujah. hallelujah hallelujah yes you can be seated have you believed in this savior if you haven't what are you afraid of losing maybe even just take a minute and pinpoint that thing i'm afraid of